Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, thank you guys. If you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. We are in verses 33 through 41 today. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible, we got Bibles in the back there for you next to the, to the AV booth. That is our, our gift to you. As you turn there, let me review from last Sunday. We, we studied the first three hours of Jesus' crucifixion. And in that process, we met a man named Simon. He was from Cyrene. He lived in what is today Libya. Uh, Libya is a long way from Jerusalem. So this man hiked over 1,200 miles uh, to celebrate Passover. And we learned how Simon from Cyrene, how he had a divine disruption to his entire life as he was walking into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. We also witnessed the scorn and the humiliation of, of the Jewish lay people, uh, also the religious elites as Jesus was hanging from the cross for the first three hours. Several of the key points from last week. Number one, as a Christian, your life must also be filled with times of suffering. We talked about number two, it's because Jesus refused to save himself that he was able to save sinners. And number three, we said, run away from religious people. Just run. I think I caught some of you off guard with that statement. <laughs> Dustin, aren't you religious? I, I want to follow up briefly on that point. Religious people are those who insist that you have to follow the rules to earn God's favor. Scripture says the opposite. Let me show you this. It is written, Romans 8.8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So many of you have been raised in a church atmosphere of legalism, right? To where you got to do this and don't do that. You know, you should be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that. In other words, you just, you can't have any fun anymore. <laughs> Why? Because you're a Christian, you are dead to fun. Is that what God's word says? Thou shalt not have any more fun and be baptized in pickle juice. Is that what it says? No, God's word says that God himself came from heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life by obeying those rules. And then he died a criminal's death because he he. He obeyed those rules. So, did Jesus do all of that for you to continue keeping the rules? Everybody go like this. No, no. Jesus is the one who kept the rules. He's the perfect substitute for our sin. And, and I wanted to share that this morning before we begin with the lesson. Because if you grew up in that legalistic church environment. I, I'm sorry. 
just hear me, I'm sorry. And please know this, you're, you were taught most likely that you have to be a good Christian. I don't even know what a good Christian is. I don't even know what that means, right? Either you're a Christian or you're not. Either you believe that Jesus is God or, or you don't. Galatians 5.1 It is written, I want to free some of you up this morning with this legalism nonsense. Listen to the word of God. It is for freedom that Christ set you free. It's for freedom that Christ set you free. You got to stand firm and don't submit again to that yoke of slavery. In in, in other words, what's the yoke of slavery? It's religion. So don't go back there. So all that to say, if you haven't signed up for our Galatians Bible study, (laughs) coming up the middle of uh, January, and you don't understand, or maybe you need to be reminded of of legalism versus grace, and grace and legalism, that's that's what Galatians is. It's a mini Romans. And my dear friend, Dr. Cameron Wold's going to teach that, and, and he's going to bless you with that. So I, I pray that you consider, consider that study. All right. Well, today we're going we're gonna to see God the Father visit Golgotha. We're, we're going to study the last three hours of Jesus' crucifixion. Today's text really is the high point of salvation history. And the, the message that I that I. I'm going to share with you this morning that I submit to you this morning. It is too good. It is too beautiful. It is truly too holy for me to teach this. But we're going to try. All right. In today's scripture passage, we're going to see how Jesus Christ saves the world. And it's not how we picture it. In fact, it's the complete opposite. Jesus is not some make-believe superhero with spandex and a mask, right? He's not. He's not a morally upright person who battles evil. Jesus is the one true living God. He's he's the, the Lamb of God that offers himself in our place. And today we're going to dive into that place. The place where every sin of every believer is now cast upon Jesus. Last week we saw Jesus endure the physical pain the continued emotional shame from the world. And today we're going to see how Jesus endures the Father's wrath for our sin. So let me ask you, what does that even look like? I mean, what's that even mean? What supernaturally transpired during these three hours where Jesus is hanging on that cross, God the Father shows up, and he endures the wrath? What does that mean? What's what's that look like? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word this morning. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 and following. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing heard this, they, they said, well, see, he's, he's calling for Elijah. 
Someone ran and they filled a sponge with sour wine and they fixed it on a stick and they offered him a drink. And then they said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. And Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. And then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite Jesus, he saw the way that he breathed his last. He said, well, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joses and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him. They took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. Father, the psalmist writes, help me understand your instruction and I will obey it and I will follow it with all of my heart. Amen and amen. Thank you guys. Have a seat. Well, let's take a deeper look here at verse 33. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So Jesus had already spent three hours on the cross when at 12 noon, darkness covered the entire land during the brightest part of the day. This darkness was not a short amount of time either. Mark is very precise here. He says for three hours. Now, there is a debate on whether this darkness was local, meaning if it just covered Israel or if it was worldwide. I would submit to you that it was worldwide. And the reason for that, two reasons. Number one, because sin is worldwide. Romans 3.10, it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There's no one who does what is good. Not even one. Not even one. So in other words, the whole world is guilty of sin Secondly, all the gospel writers say that this darkness was extensive. Not only do we know this from scripture, but other external records also confirm it as well. Some of the early church fathers like Tertullian and Origen, they suggest that the darkness extended throughout the Roman Empire. Secular writings also confirm this darkness. We have a Greek scientist. He was living in Egypt at the time. His name was Dionysius. He reported experiencing this darkness while visiting the city of Heliopolis. The funny thing about Heliopolis, it means the city of the sun. (laughs) Sun City went dark for three hours. And I'm not talking about about the one outside of uh, Phoenix. A second example comes from a a man named uh, Diogenes. He was also a Greek scientist living in Egypt. And although this man was a pagan... His reaction to this darkness is profound. Listen to this. He wrote this. Either the deity himself suffers at this moment, or he sympathizes with the one that does. The third writer is Phlegon of Trellis. Phlegon was a Greek. He lived in Asia Minor. He wrote this. There was a great and remarkable eclipse of the sun above any that had happened before. He stated that uh, the day turned into night at 12 noon, and it was so dark that he could see the stars. He then describes how a great earthquake shook Bithynia. That's a city that's now in Turkey. Uh, It's about a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. 
And he also states that many of the houses in the city of, of Nicaea were also toppled. So let me ask you, what's the cause of this darkness? I, I find it best to, to discuss what the darkness isn't before we jump into what it is. The cause of the darkness was not Satan. Satan does not have cosmic power. God does. Scripture tells us this in Job chapter 9, verse 7, Isaiah 45, 6, and Ezekiel 32, 7. Secondly, it's not an eclipse. Science denies that this darkness was a natural eclipse from the sun. An eclipse doesn't last for three hours. So what caused it? Maybe the better question is, who caused it? The cause of the darkness is God the Father. It's a fulfillment of more Old Testament scripture because darkness is a sign of judgment. Let me show you a few Old Testament passages here. Amos chapter 8 verse 9, I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the land in the daytime. Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 15, that day, that day is a day of wrath. It's a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation. It's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness. Joel chapter 2 verse 1, blow the ram's horn in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy mountain, let all the residents of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. In fact, it's near, it's a day of darkness, it's a day of gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness darkness. So all that to say this, darkness symbolizes God's judgment on sin. If you think back to the Exodus, remember what happened? We had the the plague of darkness that overcomes the land before the first Passover lamb was slain. And now, before the death of the lamb of God, we have more darkness. Brings us to key point number one. This darkness is not the absence of God. It's the presence of God. This darkness is not the absence of God. It's the presence of God. It is God expressing his holy fury and judgment on sin. So with that disclaimer, let let me ask you this. What happened during those three hours of darkness with God the Father visiting Golgotha? Because remarkably, the Gospels, they don't record one word spoken to anyone during this time. So evidently, the horror of of the Father's wrath was too much for any human eye to watch. So Jesus was alone. And it's in that solitary confinement to where in the darkness now, you've got wave after wave after wave of the world's sin being unleashed on Jesus Christ. In other words, hell came to Israel that day. God unleashed the full extent of our eternal punishment. And it's in that time frame of those three hours, Jesus endured the eternal wrath of God for every sinner who who repents and believes. So, How can Jesus endure God's eternal wrath for every believer in three hours? Well, because Jesus is not just the Son of Man, but He's also the Son of God. He is truly human and He is truly divine, meaning Jesus is an infinite, He's an eternal person. 
Jesus is the only person who qualifies to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No mere mortal can do that. No one else qualifies. Jesus had to be human because it's humans who sinned. A human must be the sacrifice. But see, Jesus is also truly divine, which means he is the only one who can. Dear friends, that's a a fundamental theological lesson for all of us today. Because Jesus is both human and divine, his personhood, his work are also limitless and divine as well. All that to say this, evidently, God the Father deemed that Jesus suffer for three hours. Now, it's important to note here that, that the Father did not visit Golgotha to punish those people mocking Jesus. That's what we would think, that God the Father would, would show up and go, you're going to do this to my boy? You're not going to do this to my boy and get away with it. That's not what happens here. Incredibly, God the Father came to punish Jesus. God came to punish God. See, God is both just and he's also the justifier. We we know this because the word of God tells us in Isaiah 53.10. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. We could read it this way. The father was pleased to crush the son severely. See, it's, it's on God the Father's timetable that he visits Golgotha at this moment. He's given humanity three hours to prepare for what's getting ready to happen next. Not one gospel writer records a single event of what takes place during these three hours. There is only terrifying darkness. No one can see a thing and no one says a word. And for three hours, Jesus as the perfect son of man, a human being, he was separated from God the Father. God's holy nature demanded that a human being experience the consequences of sin through the separation of God. Scripture tells us what happens during those three hours. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the apostle Paul writes, he made the one who did not know sin, so God the Father made the the son who didn't know any sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So how did Jesus become sin? Well, he became the sin offering. All the Old Testament sacrifices, they point to the cross. Remember when John the baptizer said this? He said, look, that guy right there, that's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So question, how how did Jesus really and truly take our sin upon himself? Answer, by by becoming the sin offering that's represented in the Old Testament. Finally, after three hours, the darkness slowly goes away and Jesus finally speaks. Verse 34, at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He said, Eloi, Eloi. Lama Sabachthani. It's translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So if you take verse 34 out of its original context, you might might conclude here that Jesus was crying out in despair and in defeat. But in reality, this cry was after those three hours. And here's the thing. Jesus knew that the Father was there with him in the darkness. 
Jesus didn't say a word then. But it's only now when the darkness goes away and the Father leaves that Jesus cries out and he says, my God, my God. These are the first words out of Jesus' mouth. He has made propitiation. He has made satisfaction. He has paid our moral debt in full. And what Jesus is doing here, he's quoting Psalm 22. In the Hebrew culture, this pointed to the entire psalm. So what Jesus is doing here in Mark 1534, he's crediting all of Psalm 22 to himself. Brings us to key point number two. When Jesus felt most abandoned by the Father, Jesus declared his continued trust in the Father. When Jesus felt most abandoned by the Father, he declared his continued trust in the Father. He doubled down on his faith. Jesus cries out for the Father, and yet the Father doesn't reply. The Father remains silent, and yet it's in the silence where Jesus proclaims his trust. Dear friends, that's a huge lesson for us today. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we too, we are to walk by faith, not by sight. What is faith? Hebrews 11, 1 says, faith is the reality of what's hoped for. It's the proof of what is not seen. That is such an important theological lesson for us today because it's only here in the gospel in the four Gospels, if you read all four of them, that Jesus called the Father God. Typically, Jesus calls God Father. So why does Jesus use a formal term here instead of the intimate one that he's always used? Well, because at this moment, the relationship is not a father to a son, but to a judge, to a defendant. See, our salvation is judicial, And we're talking about perfect justice being executed on humanity at this point. Hebrews 9.22 says, according to the law, so here we have our justice system, right? We got jurisprudence. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So a blood payment, it had to be made for sin. And Jesus paid it. Verse 35 When some of those standing heard this, they said, well, see, he's calling for Elijah. Now, why would some people assume that Jesus is calling for the old prophet Elijah? Well, Eloi, Eloi, it means my God, my God, but it can also refer to the the shortened name of Elijah. So Eloi, Eloi, Eli, right? Eli, Eloi. So some folks in the crowd, they were watching and they deliberately distort Jesus's words. They presume that he's calling out for Elijah. Now, why would they make that presumption? Because 2 Kings chapter 2 tells us that Elijah, he was snatched into heaven without dying. He was just raptured right into heaven. Also, there's a tradition in Israel that said Elijah would return in times of crisis to protect and rescue the righteous. So in other words... Those in Israel, they believe that Elijah was some kind of patron saint of lost causes. So John's gospel fills in the gap here. John 19, 28. After all this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, 
I'm thirsty. Jesus is obviously physically thirsty, but why else would Jesus ask for a drink at this moment? Two reasons, I think. Because number one, he knows he's moments away from death, and number two, he's got something to say. He's got something to say. He's got something to say before his human body completely collapses and suffocates to death. Jesus is not going to die like everyone else who's been crucified. So back to verse 36, someone ran, they filled a sponge with sour wine, they fixed it on a stick, they offered him a drink. Now this wine is not the same wine that's mentioned back in verse 23 from last Sunday. This wine was a wine vinegar mixture. It does not have a narcotic in it. Believe it or not, this was the favorite beverage for all the soldiers. Just like John's gospel tells us, Jesus fulfills prophecy here in Psalm 69, 21. He said, for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Mark continues here in verse 36. He says, they fixed it on a stick and they offered him a drink. So that stick, it's the same instrument that the soldiers beat Jesus with in verse 19. And at first, it may seem like people are are having compassion on Jesus. But then we hear someone say this, verse 36, well, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. See, the one who offered Jesus a drink continues to make a joke out of this whole situation. But really, the joke's on them because Elijah already came at the very, very beginning of Jesus's ministry, right? And the person and the work of John the baptizer. John's gospel gives us more detail here at this moment. John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Those three English words, it is finished, it's one word in the Greek, tetelestai. It's a beautiful word. It means paid in full. The moral debt that all of us owe to God has been rendered once and for all to Telestai. All the animal sacrifices that were continually made year after year, century after century, all in the Old Testament, those things were simply installment payments. There's no more interest. The balance has been paid in full by Jesus Christ. So back to Mark, verse 37, Jesus cried out, With a loud, excuse me, Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Gospel of Luke gives us more detail here in 2346. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And saying this, he breathed his last. So, one of the reasons that the Roman soldiers were shocked by the demeanor of Jesus is that. Not only did he not fight to be nailed to the cross, not only did Jesus not take the narcotic, but in this verse, we learn that Jesus did not die like everyone else who was crucified. See, usually the victim falls unconscious and he dies of suffocation by hanging on the cross. Here we see that Jesus was conscious until his final breath. And in fact, Jesus could have lived longer if he wanted to. Because he had enough energy to shout those last words, it is finished. So it was definitely not the last 
gasp of a dying man here. Really, it was a cry of victory. He did exactly what the Father sent him to do. Key point number three, Jesus gave his life. It was not taken from him. Jesus gave his life. It was not taken from him. None of the gospel writers say that Jesus died. If you have the GW translation or the NCV, that's a bad English translation. Jesus chose the moment of his death. So dear friends, here we got grace once again. This is the biggest dose of grace the world has ever experienced. Because the fall of Genesis 3 has now been reversed. Mankind now has the opportunity to return back to God. It is redemption and forgiveness. They are now made possible with Jesus Christ. All man has to do is not keep the rules. All man has to do is believe. So we see an immediate outcome of Jesus' death in verse 38. Then, circle that word then. Then the curtains of the temple, excuse me, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus is now dead. He's on the cross. He's done speaking. He said and done everything he needs to say. And, and he has done everything he needed to do. But evidently, God the Father isn't. The Father gives a preview here of what, what's to come to all of the religious leaders that hated his son. Notice how specific the, the language here is in verse 38. It was torn in two from top to bottom. It's as if the Father's hand himself reaching from heaven. He just grabbed it and just ripped it. The only other time that we see that word torn is in Mark chapter 1, verse 10, when God tore open the heavens at Jesus' baptism. So what is the deal with the veil? Why would God the Father make this statement? Well, it goes back to the Old Testament and how the original tabernacle was set up. Uh, This veil, it separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Only the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies for the past 1,500 years or so. He entered on the day of the atonement for a very short time. So what did he do once he stepped foot into that room with the presence of Almighty God? What what was his job? Well, his job was to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. God has mercy And then on top of the Ark of the Covenant as well. And this was just a symbol. It symbolized that a perfect animal sacrifice had been completed to atone for our sins temporarily. So he was to do this precisely. He was to do this reverently. One false move and he would fall over dead. That's a picture of law and legalism. That's why they tied a rope to the high priest's legs Because uh, if he fell over dead, no one was going to go in there and grab his body. Because they would fall over dead too. They would have to pull him out of there. All that to say this, key point number four. The veil was a visible manifestation of a spiritual reality. The veil was a visible manifestation of a spiritual reality. And the spiritual reality is this. We have no access to God. None. The veil served as a continual reminder between mankind and God. 
Basically, the veil should have had a sign on it. Do not enter. Why? Because God is holy. Man is sinful. And the only way that that man can enter is if propitiation has been made. But when the father tore the veil, he removed that barrier once and for all. Mankind now has access to God, and it's through the person and the work of Christ. There is spiritual significance to this, obviously. When the father tore the veil, the old covenant of of law, it passed away, and the new covenant of grace, there's that word again, uh, was installed. And that's why we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. The tearing of the veil, it really is stage one of the visible acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice by the Father. Stage two is the resurrection. Now, some say that an earthquake that Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew talks about, um, caused the veil to tear. Now, where are all my California people who have endured earthquakes? Yeah. Would you guys agree with me that if, if that were the case, the veil would be torn in many different directions, not just one from top to bottom? Yeah, it, it was. This is clearly a supernatural act done by the Father himself. None of the gospel writers, they offer an explanation for the tearing of the veil. That's what the epistles are for. So we have the gospels, and then we have the epistles that, that talk about and, and teach us about theology. So we see this theology in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. And Hebrews 10, 19 says, therefore, we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. We don't have to worry about falling over dead in the presence of God anymore because Jesus paid the price. Verse 39 When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way that he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. So standing opposite him, that phrase there, it means that the centurion had a front row seat to the most significant act in salvation history. Now, this is crazy because we've got a Gentile centurion who supervised the execution The execution of Jesus, he led the execution squad, and he's the only one out of all these people to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And what's even crazier than that, there's only one other place in Mark's gospel where somebody confesses that. Anybody remember? It's a demon. A demon in Mark chapter 3, verse 11. As a battle-hardened career soldier, why would this centurion make this claim about Jesus? Why would he say this man really, truly was the Son of God? Well, he saw everything, didn't he? He saw Pilate's legal pronouncement that Jesus was innocent. He saw the hatred of the religious leaders, the hatred of the crowd. He saw the terrible, awful flogging of Jesus. He saw his own soldiers mock and beat and spit on Jesus. And then he, did, he watched Jesus do three things from the cross. He watched Jesus make the promise of forgiveness and eternal life to the thief on the cross. 
He watched Jesus minister and take care of his own mother from the cross. And he heard Jesus forgive other people. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. The centurion experienced also the judgment of God in that midday darkness. He felt the darkness. He felt the presence of God. And then he watched Jesus die. And he watched him die unlike any other person he has ever witnessed. Lastly, he felt the earthquake. So how can anyone really be a firsthand witness to all these things and not get saved? I don't know. Tradition says that this centurion's name was Longinus. Whether that's true or not, this man, just like the thief, uh, they do come to faith. Verse 40, there were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and Joses, and Salome. So here we see that there were women disciples. They were watching from a distance. Watching from a distance a whole lot better than absence. Where were the men? Certainly the male disciples are absent there. John finally shows up at the end. Uh, Mary Magdalene, she was the woman whom Jesus cast seven demons out of. Uh, Basically, Mary never left Jesus' side uh, from that point forward. Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Josie's, that's Jesus' mother, Mary. It's kind of an odd way to state and to refer to Jesus' mother. Why would Mark do that? Well, I think he's making a point. She's not special. She is a sinner who needs a savior just like everyone else. And Salome was possibly the wife of Zebedee, uh, the mother of James and John, the sons of thunder. Verse 41, in Galilee, these women, they, they followed him. They took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. It's interesting in Mark's gospel, only women... And only angels serve Jesus. The women were there at Jesus' final breath. So the story that we just read is a story that seems too good to be true. From a human level, it's horrific and it's tragic. From a divine perspective, though, it's a beautiful disaster. It is the most substantial cosmic event imaginable. And yet, it's not imaginable by us, by humans, because God is the one that purposed it. He's the one that purposed our redemption. There's a lot to this story that I do not understand. But what I do understand, it causes me to worship Jesus. I find it interesting that nobody understood what was actually taking place when it was taking place. At the end of the narrative here, we we see the centurion. He he comes the closest. But today, I also think that we don't understand what is actually taking place in our lives today either. Many of us don't realize that God or what God is doing during this time of judgment. As Americans, it seems that as long as we have our entertainment and our fast food, we're just going to shut up and be happy. But as Christians, we are to understand the signs of the times. As Christians, we are to finish the work that God started in us. The centurion said this, back to verse 39, truly this man 
was the Son of God. He came the closest to understanding what was happening, but he was wrong. Jesus was not the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is alive. And over the next two weeks, we're going to learn how, and we're going to learn why. Dear friends, if you please stand for the benediction and the prayer this morning. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. I say it again, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace be with you all. Amen Amen. and amen.